Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 127 for the first half of March 2015. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the saga of Comet Halebop and its fugacious companion, Part 1. This Part 1 is going to be about the claimed astronomical, tangible evidence related to the whole story of Comet Halebop. Before I get into the specific part of the story that I'm going to address in this episode, I want to first preface this, not only this episode, but this entire three-part series, with a few important points. First, I take the entire Halebop uh, claimed companion very seriously because by most readings of what happened, despite the direct statement by the cult, it at least contributed, if not directly, led to the suicide of 39 people. I've listened to hours of interviews and read dozens of articles about what was going on at the time and who said what when, but it's possible that I will make errors. Please know up front that I'm doing my best to represent what happened over the course of about six months back in 1996 and 1997 and that I'm going to give you a very abridged version, despite this topic spanning three episodes. Second, I'm going to try very hard in these three episodes to be as objective as possible. I'm going to try to leave my usual wry snark, that's so endearing, aside, and I'm also going to probably not take people to task nearly as much as you might want me to. I'm still going to point out inconsistencies and lies, but because this is such a serious topic and some people are uh, litigatious, if that's a word, I'm going to be more restrained than usual. What I'm going to tell you and play for you will probably speak for itself, and I enjoyed so many hours of Coast to Coast AM for this that you're going to, I mean, you're going to enjoy listening along with me for context of a lot of the points that I'm going to be making. Thirdly and finally, critics or general wanderers will often ask those in the modern scientific skepticism or skeptical movement why we do what we do. Who cares if someone believes in astrology, Bigfoot, crystal power, dolphin telepathy, or that sodium bicarbonate cures cancer? What's the harm? Well, I've picked a niche area of skepticism, uh, one where there very rarely is obvious harm. If you believe in Richard Hoagland's hyperdimensional physics and 19.5 degrees is a magical number, it's really not going to affect your everyday life. Probably not even your pocketbook unless you buy one of his books or go to one of his lectures. Most other fields in skepticism do have an obvious answer to what's the harm. Medicine especially, the sodium bicarbonate curing cancer is a good example. This is different. This is a case where I can clearly point to a causal link between astronomical pseudoscience and harm in the death and suicide of 39 people and the effect that had on their families and friends. Now, with all that in mind, there are many, many parts to the Hale-Bopp story. I've tried to come up with a way to present the material in compartmentalized episodes that tell a complete substory, but when put together, they tell the broader picture of what went on. And just exactly like the Lord of the Rings movies, just, just as epic, if not even more so, I'm writing all three of these at about the same time, although the first one is finished first as I continue to work on the others. 
The way that I'm dividing these is that the first is going to be about the astronomy and the astronomy claims. It's perhaps the only of these three that could really stand alone on this podcast because the next two are much less about astronomy, but they are still integral to the story. The next episode will be about remote viewing and the claims associated with that particular set of beliefs, the fallout from it, and the unsinkable rubber ducky. The third part will be about the Heaven's Gate cult and the suicide in the aftermath as the astronomical evidence and the remote viewing claims were met with increased scrutiny, but people continued to find conspiracy and reasons to believe something mysterious. They will cover similar periods of time, but from different angles. That's really the only way that I could figure out how to separate them without stopping in the middle of the... No discussion of Hale-Bopp and claims of destruction would be complete without a very, very brief history, after that five-minute intro, of at least mentioning that across human history, comets have been often associated with doom and gloom. It makes at least a little bit of sense. You're a pre-scientific culture, and you really have no idea what the sky is. As far as you've been told, and likely believe, the sky is a constant, changing only very slightly from night to night as it rotates above you. The only things that defy this relatively predictable motion are what the Greek called planetes, a derivative of the planon, maybe, uh, which means wanderer, because they literally wandered across the sky in unpredictable ways, at least over the long term. And then, suddenly, and relatively briefly, you have what the Chinese called broom stars, these bright objects with not only a disk, but a streamer of light coming from them that could span, I'll bet less than one such generation, across the entire sky and rival daylight itself in brightness. It's, a, it's very much a WTF moment, to use the king's English. Humans are pattern-seeking creatures, and the logical fallacy of correlation is not equal to causation had not yet been codified. It was a relatively easy thing to say that this object or this event was the cause of something bad that happened near to or during that time. Fast forward several millennia, and just for fun, let's stop in 1910. Astronomer Mary Proctor had to write an entire article for mass consumption in the Times Magazine section on Sunday, May 8th, entitled, quote, Fears of the Comet are Foolish and Ungrounded, unquote. The comet in question was Halley's Comet, and besides Mary Proctor's own words, the newspaper interviewed octogenarians who recalled the hysteria the last time the comet came around in 1834. They related how they laughed afterwards when nothing happened. But despite that, and despite it being A.D. 1910 instead of 1910 B.C., people were still fearful. The fear was less, a great king will die, but instead the fear had a more scientific twist. But the fear remained. Mary's article started with this, quote, A dismal report is circulating to the effect that Halley's Comet is about to cause the destruction of our planet, and as we draw nearer the fateful date of May 18th, a grave feeling of apprehension is excited in the minds of those who are very naturally afraid of something they cannot understand. On May 18th, the Earth will be plunged in this white-hot mass of glowing gas, and, according to the report of the ignorant and superstitious, the world will be set on fire. These sensation-makers further say that the oceans on the side facing the comet will be boiled by the intense heat, and the land scorched and blistered as the dread wanderer passes on its baneful way. 
How the report started, and by whom, it is difficult to trace, but the harm is done. We hear daily of people overcome with terror, one committing suicide, preferring to choose his own manner of death, rather than await the coming of the final destruction of the earth. Another has gone insane, and numberless other cases, if known, might be added, showing the harm which has been done by the sensational articles which have been published accompanied by lurid illustrations showing purely imaginary effects of the comet. It would be well if our own times were free from these idle fears concerning cometary influence, for it would prove that men were unaffected by the debasing effects of ignorance and superstition. Why should bodies traveling uniformly in definite paths under the influence of the law of gravity be regarded as special messengers warning men either of good or evil approaching them? Good and evil prevail in this world, comet or no comet, but the broad shoulders, or rather head, of Halley's comet must bear the blame for every disaster likely to occur on or before the fateful May 18th. Astronomers are being suspected as conspiring together to keep the uninitiated in ignorance as the true fate awaits our planet. They are besieged with letters and inquiries as to the threatened end of the world. The poisonous cyanogen gas, which has been detected in the composition of the train, should in no way cause unnecessary alarm. Though the size of the comet is enormous, the particles of which it is made are excessively minute. Let us enjoy the approach of the comet as the experience of a lifetime, giving us a practical illustration of the marvelous law of gravitation and a spectacular display of cometary glory on a magnificent scale. End quote. I have the entire article posted in the show notes, and I do recommend reading it. I related to you about a quarter of it. My point in reading it is that, other than a few specific details and perhaps language issues from a century ago, this could have been written today, or three years ago with the 2012 phenomenon. It could also have been written in 1996 with Hale-Bopp, and in fact a version was in the New York Times in 1997. The same kinds of ignorant fear and superstition were prevalent, only changed by the words and technology of the time, and we'll start to get into that now after now an 11-minute introduction. Comet Halebop was discovered July 23, 1995 by Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp. They discovered it independently, and per the rules of the International Astronomical Union, any person who discovers an object within 24 hours of the first report will also have their name attached to it. The comet was a surprising discovery for where it was. It was discovered when it was well past Jupiter's orbit, practically halfway between it and Saturn. This had never been done before, because comets are rarely bright enough for discovery at that point in their orbit. You may recall from episode 4 that comet Elenin had a very similar early discovery, and the fear and the superstition that surrounded it, including the anomaly hunting and numerological quote-unquote coincidences, claimed by Richard Hoagland to quote-unquote prove that it was artificial. Apparently, he learned absolutely nothing from the hale affair, despite being part of its aftermath, as I'll talk about in episode or part three. Because of how bright the comet was at that point in its orbit, astronomers held out hope that it would put on a spectacular display as it got closer to the sun. Comets' brightnesses are notoriously difficult to predict. Comet Hale-Bopp ended up fulfilling and exceeding all expectations. It was bright enough to be seen during the day, or at least during twilight, and I remember going out on the deck at night in 1997 to see it. It was visible to the unaided eye for 8 
18 months from Earth, which was over twice as long as the previous record holder, the Great Comet of 1811. Because of how bright the comet was already getting throughout 1996, and how early it had been discovered in its orbit back in 1995, and perhaps even with the impact of Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 into Jupiter the year before in 1994, the familiar tales of intrigue surrounding comets were already rising. To quote the aforementioned New York Times article by George Johnson from March 28, 1997, quote, for months, internet groups like Alt.Conspiracy and Psy.Astro have rung with rumors about a UFO supposedly riding behind Hale-Bopp. When astronomers posted corrections to the comet's predicted trajectory, the new data were taken as proof that Hale-Bopp was changing course, that it was under intelligent control. End quote. Hale-Bopp did end up quote-unquote changing course, as I discussed in my first episode on the claims of James McCanney. Only it was not because the comet was under intelligent control, nor because of electronic plasma tail drag stuff. One reason was because Jupiter's immense gravity pulled it slightly, altering its delicate orbit into something slightly different. Another reason was that the initial orbit calculations had huge uncertainties because there were so few observations. Recall episodes 94 and 108 on uncertainty. It's actually very similar to what happened with asteroid Apophis and would it hit Earth in, uh, what was it, 2038? Well, once we had more observations, we refined its orbit and showed, no, it's not going to hit in 2038. Alan Hale himself wrote that the early calculations for its orbit were, quote, based upon extremely limited data and labeled as highly uncertain when they were published and differed in some particulars from the more definitive orbits published subsequently, end quote. Not only that, but a third reason that its orbit altered slightly was that comets outgas. It's like it's literally, well, they have tiny thrusters all over their surface, and this will act to perturb the orbit slightly, adding a third reason as to why the orbit changed from what was initially and subsequently predicted. It was within this environment that, on the night of November 14, 1996, an amateur astronomer took a photograph of Comet Hale-Bopp. His name was Chuck Schrammick, now deceased but forever tied to Comet Hale-Bopp. He used some of the best technology at the time, a very small CCD chip that was maybe the equivalent in pixels to a VHS tape. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, ask an old person, someone over 30. What Chuck saw shocked him. This thing, what I photographed tonight, just showed up. I mean, I, I have pictures of the comet from last night and the night before. This is a big thing. Uh, uh, not far, I, I estimate maybe about 150,000 miles away from Hale-Bopp. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if it is as far out as Hale-Bopp, I don't know, Art. It's, it, it's in the same picture. I'm just making that assumption that it's out there in that neighborhood. Yes. It appears to be several times larger than the Earth. I, I'd guess about four times larger than the Earth. And there appears to be what looks like Saturn-like rings. They're, they're very flat. It's almost as if we're looking at them on edge. And, you know, I ran inside. I thought, no, it's just, it's just a star. And I, look, I have a computer-generated star map. I can uh, tell ahead of time what stars are going to be in the background. Right. And there was no star there. I mean, just nothing. There's a couple of stars that show up in the frame uh, to the right of Hale-Bopp, and those showed up, but this big 
bright thing did not show up. And I kept, I checked the date on my watch, I checked the date on the computer, and looked at the pictures coming in again. I, uh, on the computer, I have a CCD imaging system, and uh, my heart starts going faster and faster and faster, and I realized, I'm really, this is, this is amazing. I'm, I'm photographing something that's actually out there that's big, and I don't have much of an observing window for Hale-Bopp here. It's about 30 minutes. But I saw, saw it that whole time. I have perhaps 100 pictures of it. What could it be? <laughs> well, that might be an area for Courtney to get into, Art. I have no idea. All right, whatever it is, it, it, it would roughly, if it's in the same area as Hale-Bopp, would be roughly the scale, to scale it about four times the size of Earth? And that's real rough. It's, it's certainly larger than the Earth. That, that's enough. a rough guess. I'll have to go over my pixels later and measure it more carefully. With that said, in his own words, the take-home summary is that he saw a bright object near Hale-Bopp and looked at his star map to see what it was, didn't see anything on the map, and sent the picture to Art Bell that very night. The picture showed the comet, but it also showed a bright object near it, with two small spikes radiating from it at opposite sides. There were several other dimmer circles of light that Chuck knew were stars. Despite everything else and all other mistakes that people have pinned or called Chuck Schrammick out on, and I'll get to those in a minute, in my opinion, that was the biggest mistake. If you think you have discovered a new object in the sky, regardless of what you think that object might be, your first step should not be to email it to a late-night paranormal talk show host and go on air to talk about it and say that it's a giant object bigger than Earth. You should contact almost anyone else, preferably an astronomer or university or any of the numerous amateur astronomer groups in practically every city in the world, but especially a large city like Houston, Texas. In hindsight, practically every account of the saga of Hale-Bopp today and its phantasmagoric companion will pin the origin and genesis on Chuck Schrammick. The consequence of Chuck going on art was that Art Bell contacted a remote viewer, Courtney Brown. Or, a little over two months later, Art said that Courtney had contacted him that very night. Although, to me, it seems a little odd, and I think that it was Art who approached him, given that I'm not sure how otherwise Courtney would have heard about it. Regardless, earlier that year, Courtney had published a book entitled Cosmic Voyage, A Scientific Discovery of Extraterrestrials Visiting Earth. But that's for part two. The story of this claimed companion was picked up by many other news outlets that night and the next day, and Alan Hale's phone was ringing off the hook. He later wrote in the Skeptical Inquirer, volume 21.2, March-April 1997, quote, My investigation of this took me to the World Wide Web homepage of the Houston Photographer, which contained several apocalypse-suggestive statements about Hale-Bopp, as well as numerous allegations of government cover-ups and conspiracies, including references to known quote-unquote fringe writers like Richard Hoagland and Zachariah Sitchin. These strongly suggested that this individual was predisposed to come to quote-unquote strange conclusions about the comet. Even more important, once I was able to examine the images in question and could match the surrounding star field with a photograph of the same region of the sky taken during the course of the Palomar Sky Survey in the early 1950s, I found that the location of the, quote, Saturn-like object, end quote, coincided perfectly with the bright 8th magnitude star that the comet just happened to be located next to 
on the night in question. The Saturn-like rings extending from the quote-unquote object were apparently nothing more than a diffraction effect, a common occurrence of overexposed stellar images on astronomical photographs. It has also recently come to light that the particular CCD, charge-coupled device and electronic detector, camera used to take the photographs in question is of a type that is highly sensitive to infrared wavelengths and that the star in question is a red giant and consequently more luminous in the infrared than in the visible part of the spectrum. Numerous other astronomers who investigated this came to the same conclusion I did, and in an effort to redirect the flood of inquiries I was receiving, I posted the results of my explanation, along with the appropriate photographs on the Hale-Bopp homepage. My explanation there apparently generated an enormous amount of discussion on the ArcBell program and elsewhere, and led to a large amount of surprisingly vicious hate mail being sent to hellbop.com, as well as numerous accusations that I'm involved in the quote-unquote conspiracy that is quote-unquote hiding information about Hailbop. For the record, I continue to be an all-but-unemployed astronomer, and I have not received a single government paycheck for any involvement I have had with this comet. The fact that claims such as these receive such widespread acceptance among large segments of the general public is not something that we scientists and rationalists should dismiss lightly. This whole phenomenon of Hale-Bopp madness strikes me as a glaring example of the scientific illiteracy that pervades our society and that has been addressed many times in the pages of this magazine and so eloquently by Carl Sagan in The Demon Haunted World. End quote. Before I play another coast-to-coast AM clip to show what Alan Hale was talking about, I think it important to remind you of the 1910 article written by Mary Proctor. The exact same claims then were being made now, and are still being made today. It seems as though conspiracists simply have nothing new to claim, and so it must constantly resort to everyone's hiding evidence from them. In this situation, the reason that Chuck didn't see the star, and it's an objective fact that that star is in that exact spot that he photographed and claimed the object was, that, that's a fact. Uh, the star's name was SAO141894. The reason he didn't see it in his computer-generated star map is that he had the settings wrong. It was a feature of the software program. Yes, the, the date and time and location were correct, but he had set it so that the software would not display stars either as bright as 8.5 magnitude or as faint as 8.5 magnitude. I'm not entirely sure which because I couldn't find a report of which it was, but 8.5 is somewhat faint. It's about 100 times fainter than you can see from the darkest locations with the unaided eye. So I would guess that since that's the only star in that field that's really bright, and that the other small disks are obviously stars, I would guess that Chuck didn't have it set to show stars that faint. Uh, again, 8.5 magnitude, it's bright on a CCD, it's going to be faint to the unaided eye because you can't even see it. In this case, as Alan Hale related months later, the conspiracies remained, and the explanation that this was a simple misidentification of a star fell on deaf ears. Two weeks later, the night of November 28, 1996, Art Bell interviewed Courtney Brown again, along with some other people that I'll get to in part two. But he opened the broadcast with this statement. I do wish to acknowledge Chuck Schrammick. You may recall about two weeks ago on this program, Chuck 
Schrammick, an amateur photographer, uh, astronomer and photographer, I guess, in uh, Houston, Texas, employed by a commercial radio station there, imaged something that he could not figure out uh, when he imaged Hale-Bopp, something he thought should not have been there. That photograph continues to remain, despite statements by many in the astronomical community, uh, continues to remain an anomaly. He's re-imaged. He finds the star that was uh, being covered by this object that he imaged, but it does not, uh, under similar exposure times, add up to uh, uh, the object uh, that is in Chuck's original image. So he stands by his work. And as you listen this morning, you will see that it is well that he stands by his work. It was revealed during this broadcast that because of the hate mail and media pressure that Chuck was getting, I guess it goes both ways, both to the debunkers and to the pseudoscientists, uh, he had to leave his home for a while. Art's guest, Courtney Brown, compared Chuck to other quote-unquote great teachers, including Socrates and Jesus. While Chuck was clearly the first to produce and receive mass attention of a photo of, and make a specific claim about, a companion to Hale-Bopp, other people besides Art Bell and Courtney Brown, again, I'll talk more about Courtney Brown actually later in this episode, but a lot in part two, well, other people latched onto it very quickly and claimed that any official story to the contrary was a cover-up. It also caused more and more fringe people to come out of the woodwork with their either real, unrelated, or fake degrees being used to prop up their claims. And when I say fake, I mean they come from diploma mills or similar things, such as my Doctorate of Theology from Thunderwood College's Engineering School, as well as my Doctorate in Thinkology from The Wizard of Oz. An example is Dr., and I put that in quotes, Lee Shargell, who was introduced on a UFO mailing list as a, quote, graduate of Northeastern University and who holds degrees in industrial engineering, robotics, and a doctorate in material science, has worked for NASA as an engineer scientist with top-secret clearance on the TDRS, Hubble Telescope, and SRBOC projects, has stepped forward to both announce that this is no anomaly of any telescope or misguided software, much less a ball of swamp gas, flock of geese, or a trick on the eye. In fact, Dr. Shargell possesses his own set of 17 photographs of this object accompanying Hale-Bopp. End quote. Meanwhile, UFOWatchdog.com points out that Dr. Shargell never worked for NASA and that his degrees come from universities that don't exist and he has no scientific credentials. And, at his speech at a UFO convention that year, 1996, the same year he went on Art Bell's show, he, quote, made claims so outrageous, backed by photos and illustrations so patently absurd, that the conference organizers and speakers and audience were amazed, to the point that there were people who stomped out of the room while hollering charlatan at him. I mention him now because I'll refer to him again in part three. But more to the point for this episode, part one, he was on Coast to Coast just four nights later with Art Bell. He claimed that there was indeed a companion. He had pictures, and other astronomers had pictures, and that it was emitting radio signals that he had decoded. It was both a greeting and a warning. And conveniently, this was exactly what he had written in a book in 1993. By my book. 
He claimed that the warning was about a neutron pulse that was going to wipe out life on Earth just like it had done with the dinosaurs, but that Harp, along with Serenet, would create a shield around the planet to stop it. But we had to be warned in order to get our shield up on time. FYI, Harp is real, Serenet is not. Whether Art believed this or not is beside the point. It shows that more and more people who may otherwise never have been let off their meds and let into the public sphere now had much freer reign because of Shramick's photo. Other people claimed additional sightings of the quote-unquote companion, and they claimed again that all debunking were just part of the conspiracy. This, actually, I think is very similar to the whole uh, Visions at Fatima. I suggest you listen to Skeptoid's episode on that or look it up for yourself and the whole uh, mass hallucination stuff. Without getting into the material that I'm going to be addressing in the next episode, it was also revealed during the November 28, 1996 broadcast that Courtney Brown, along with his assistant, who is also his webmaster and a physics student, who's named Prudence Calabrese, had spoken with what they described over and over and over again during that broadcast and other broadcasts and in print as a, quote, top 10 university astronomer who verified the basic idea that they were presenting. We called around and contacted some astronomers that were in the Big Ten, top ten universities, to get as much verifying information as we could. Of course. And what basically happened is that we had contacted a number of astronomers. Many were very interested. They were all frightened with the implications that it could be if they were to get involved with any information dealing with this anomaly. Uh, because of the because of the implications that it could have on their careers, all that would happen to Chuck Schrammack and so on. But some were courageous, and one in particular allowed us to uh, uh, shared with us in confidence information that allowed us to confirm what our remote viewing was. Basically, it was that the object that was near uh, the comet was indeed photographed by this astronomer's team that the that the object had been photographed numerous times it moves about it is huge and prudence calabrese will actually describe in detail in the next hour about the photographs he shared with us these photographs and he shared with us uh, a number of rolls of film of these images uh, of which uh, the, we found we found five to be really spectacular and internet quality that type of stuff. Okay, this is not a uh, amateur. This no. is a, a this is a guy who is fully the best of the best. Uh, uh, not only a professional, but someone with an international reputation who has worked with the best teams uh, on the most on the most serious of projects. In addition to that, and later claiming that there were six good photographs, but sometimes also going back and claiming that there were only five, he and Prudence stated that the top ten university astronomer was well-respected in his field and had, quote, absolutely impeccable credentials, end quote, and that they were getting radio signals from the object that was near Hale-Bopp. It was Lee Shergell who confirmed that they were getting radio signals, but it was actually an idea introduced by Courtney Brown in his interview uh, four nights earlier. In fact, in more of an argument from authority, Prudence claimed that the top astronomer had taught in more than one top ten university, 
also that he was well-respected in planetary science, and Prudence said that she had spent many hours talking with him. Courtney would later state that he had been one of Prudence's professors. Art Bell asked numerous times for the name of this astronomer, or where he worked, and Courtney and Prudence said that they would not reveal his name. And even though they had sent one of the photos to Art, Art was not allowed to post them. The reason the photos couldn't be posted was that they were so good that as soon as they were posted, it would be obvious where they were taken and obvious who took them, or at least a simple matter to track down. More on that in a bit. Art at least very strongly implies, if not directly stated in the episode, that he would not post the photographs. Later, though, on January 20th, 1997, he stated that he had made very clear to Courtney that he would not hold on to them forever, that he would post them eventually. In November, Prudence did say this as well. He is wanting to get as much data as possible, and he wants to have a completely irrefutable analysis um, before he comes forward to the public. He is concerned that if he comes forward at this point with these photographs and some other evidence that he has, that it won't be enough and that he'll just be besieged and his, his whole career um, will be in turmoil, as, as well as he, he kind of fears for the safety of his family and of course. himself. Of course. Whitley Strieber, a claimed UFO and alien contactee and friend of Art Bell, who was also on that night, said that he had also been sent the photo by Courtney and said that he had independently figured out who this astronomer was. Whitley would, about two months later, recant that. But Whitley also claimed, and never recanted so far as I can tell, that as soon as he saw Chuck Schrammick's photo online, he contacted an astronomer friend of his, and that astronomer friend said that it was 100% legit. Because there's not a good other place in these three episodes to discuss this, I'll do it here. Whitley, after Courtney Brown and Prudence Calabrese hung up, went further into New Age and UFO lore. Just listing a few things, there were claims that NASA certainly has many photos of the Companion, but they weren't releasing them. Hubble photos are being suppressed. Radio signal messages from the Companion may be intended for the greys that were visiting us, as which is why they were encoded that there's a 80% chance that this was meant to be first contact, that the entire scientific community needs to, quote, wake up to its obligation to God and man, end quote, and that scientists may claim that this is the real first contact, that they can still screw over contactees and other things that he and people like him have been claiming for years. The reason I bring all of this up is not necessarily to deride Whitley Straper and his reaction, but to bring it full circle back to how people throughout the eons have treated comets. The fear, the conspiracy, and the thoughts of signifying change are still there. They're simply dressed up in a different language. Let's have another brief side discussion about the photos and alien contacts to discuss the claimed physical parameters of this companion object. The claims are that 1. It has a trajectory of its own and is not predictable. 2. It's brighter than Hale-Bopp, and it is emitting its own light. But 3. It is uniform in brightness all over. 4. It is clearly larger than Earth. Chuck put it at 4 times Earth's size, or about one-third the size of Saturn. But 5. It is not affecting Hale-Bopp's orbit. Therefore, 6. It must be hollow. Courtney claimed that it's a vehicle of some sort, 
similar to Hoagland's claims about many moons and asteroids based on the original Star Trek series episode, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. But Courtney went a step further and said it was climate-controlled, and while it had no emotions, it had feelings. I, I'm not quite sure what the difference there is, but uh, that, that's what he said. Also, that this object is sentient with a guidance system and that it's made from materials not known to us, and so we should be honored that the ETs sent such a large investment towards us. Oh, and that it's good news and that we're not being invaded. But I, I'm starting to digress from my digression. So with that in mind, let's move forward. Prudence claimed that Hale-Bob itself is not unusual, that, sure, it has some unique properties, but no more so than any other comet. The only big thing was how bright it was early on, but Prudence then claimed that the companion could have made that happen, and so that we would notice it. This was an echo of what Courtney Brown had claimed two weeks earlier, although he claimed that it could not possibly have been as bright as it was without intervention. As in, Hale-Bob, it's impossible for it to be as bright as it was when it was discovered without some sort of intervention, therefore further evidence claimed that this companion was real. With all of that said, remember that all of this was based originally on Chuck Schrammick's photo, the alleged claims of an anonymous top 10 university astronomer, and remote viewing sessions. And already I realize I'm mixing parts 1 and 2 a little, but that's okay. If we go back to the idea of size, though, that is enormous. Four times the size of Earth, emitting light, but hollow so that it doesn't affect the trajectory of objects. Okay, I suppose with super advanced technology that we can't really think about right now, maybe maybe that's possible, but then it's completely inconsistent with later statements. And so already, even without getting into any conspiracy or allegations of fraud, we have problems. Specifically, Prudence Calabresi, who was introduced as a physics graduate student, stated that if the object gets too close to Earth, it would pull us out of our orbit, quote, which would be devastating, end quote. We were told not to worry, because the remote viewing sessions said that wasn't going to happen, but they don't really know how close it was going to get. If it got too close, it would most likely block out light from the sun and create chaos. What's inconsistent about this with respect to the size and mass is, if the companion can't even affect Hale-Bopp's orbit because it's so hollow, how could it possibly affect Earth's orbit, the orbit of a planet somewhere between 100 million and 1 billion times more massive than the comet? Getting back to the photos, I've discussed Chuck Schrammick's and what happened there, but it bears repeating because really, despite the vague rumors and conspiracy already surrounding Hale-Bopp, it was Chuck Schrammick's photo that kicked everything into high gear. You're going to hear three voices in this clip. First is Art Bell, then Whitley Straber, then Art again, and then Chuck with Wright. And sorry ahead of time about the sound quality. All of the publicity surrounding uh, Hale-Bopp since your images, every story that has come out, uh, literally in uh, newspapers from Albuquerque to Phoenix to San Jose to you name it, uh, an Associated Press story, um, MSNBC did a front page story on it, and so forth and so on. They all uh, try to take it on by referring only to your photograph the release one picture one That's the key the one picture right and yeah. um they try to debunk it uh, with that and you know the obvious uh, quick answer it was a star 
Chuck was mistaken. It was, uh, uh, and there was indeed a uh, software error. Yeah, yeah. But there is, a, there is, there is a star there. But a couple, a couple of things. Uh, I went back and re-imaged the area, and, and there's, uh, and I saw the star, and it, it, it's very dim there. Uh, another thing is, is the pictures I took, the the 161 pictures. Some of the, they vary in exposure, anywhere from one to five seconds. I was snapping all sorts of different uh, times on there. In every case, that thing, the companion, is the same size. And a star would have grown in size. Uh, the, the Why would a star have grown in size? The exposure would have, would have made the image grow larger and larger as, as, the, as the pixels sort of spread out there. Oh, uh, I with, see, yes. With, with the length of exposure. And, and another thing I noticed, <laughs> this is, it's really something to see my, uh, to see NASA and JPL actually go out of their way to debunk an amateur astronomer in Houston, Texas. I mean, yeah, when... to me that was incidentally when NASA and JPL got in on it. That was the tip off mm-hmm. that uh, I saw the the old the old cover up. We must not let the public know there's anything unusual in the universe mm-hmm. coming into play because uh, as soon as I thought to myself, my Lord, how must he feel? I mean, here's a. <laughs> Here's an amateur astronomer with a very legitimate and straightforward discovery, who finds instead that the whole that 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 that, that he's he's they're they're all throwing dynamite at him for no apparent reason. It must be a very weird experience. In that two-minute, nineteen-second clip, I counted a misunderstanding about imaging and an argument against authority. Important for this discussion is that even after it was pointed out what the issues were in Chuck's images. Never does Chuck claim that after the comet moved, like a few hours or days later, did he see the companion. Rather, the claim is that he re-examined those original images, and in photos with exposures between 1 and 5 seconds, the stars didn't change sizes the way he thinks they should have. But they shouldn't have. Unless you are overexposing by an extreme amount, in which case you run into technology limitations and quirks, the star is going to appear to be very close to the same size, at least when you're taking exposures of about 1 to 5 seconds. Both Art Bell and Whitley Strieber claimed that Chuck's photos were not easy to debunk, and Whitley claimed that newspapers are just there to debunk, and once they've chosen the method of debunking, they stick with it. This is despite every astronomer telling them what Chuck did wrong and reproducing exactly what happened. Beyond Chuck's photos, the remaining issue would then be the secret photos taken by the, quote, top 10 university professor, end quote. I'll note that in practically every mention of him, those first three words would be there, the top 10 university, while the last one would vary between professor and astronomer. Courtney claimed to have received these photos on three rolls of film via FedEx. He claimed that these were sent from this particular anonymous astronomer, or rather, an astronomer that he knew but would not name. He claimed that when he developed the three rolls of film, only five, as you heard earlier, but then six, as he usually claimed later, of the photos showed the mysterious object trailing Hale-Bopp. To me, this seemed weird and suspect from the get-go. Even if what Courtney was saying was completely true, it made absolutely no sense given the technology at the time, as in what he said was completely true from the point that he received those rolls of film forward. If this were a professional astronomer who had taken these photos at a professional observatory, as was the claim, 
then even in the mid-1990s, they should have been using CCDs. They're so much better than film in terms of their optical properties. In other words, the photos should have been electronic and a computer file would have been sent. And even if that were not the case, if they were still somehow, for some reason, being taken on glass plates, conversion to 35mm film seems really weird. And if they were using 35mm film from the get-go, this is a gigantic red flag. Professional observatories don't use 35mm film for their work. I suppose it's possible for someone to have hooked their SLR up to the telescope. I've done this many times on campus observatories. But professional observatories, well, the equipment usually isn't set up to let you do that. Regardless, this should have raised big red flags for anyone who was not eager to believe. Or, well, it should have raised red flags for anyone, and people should have acted on them, even if they were eager to believe. At the very least... They should have asked some friends who were professional astronomers to see if this was standard or if, well, there were red flags. That aside, while the idea of this astronomer was introduced in November of 1996, still, on December 6th, about two weeks later, Art stated, The astronomer continues to say he is coming forward. He just needs time to correlate the latest data and get his act and his ducts in a row before he releases the information. The big reveal came on January 15, 1997. It had been two months since Art and Whitley had gotten the photos from Courtney Brown that Courtney Brown said came from this film that he had developed from a top 10 university professor-slash-astronomer, and Art and Whitley had not posted them. Nor had the astronomer come forward with his own press conference, as had been suggested about six weeks earlier. Whitley and Art had talked about how they both thought that there was a, quote, moral imperative, end quote, to release the photos so that the world knew about the photographic evidence for this Hale-Bopp companion, likely because of what they both thought it meant. And so, on January 15, 1997, Art called Courtney to tell him that he was going to release the photo on his website. Not reaching him directly, he left a message, as a professional courtesy. Courtney called back and left his own message, telling Art that he would not get, quote, any payback, end quote, for putting it up, but that Art would get a lot more for, quote, standing up to your original word by not putting it up, and in the long run, it'll hurt you, end quote. Despite this, Art and Whitley both published the photo on their websites, and... Within 24 hours, we knew that photograph was a fraud. We knew that photograph, within 24 hours, had been taken by the University of Hawaii. Art then went directly into an interview with an astronomer at the University of Hawaii, who went into great detail explaining how he knew that photograph was taken by the University of Hawaii and that it matched precisely a photograph that had been, well, publicly available on their website since September the previous year, two months before Shramick's photo. I don't think it's incredibly important to get into those details here, but if you're interested, the University of Hawaii's webpage explaining those details is still posted two decades later, and I've linked to it in the show notes. The gist of it is that the Hawaii photo and the fraud photo show that the comet is in exactly the same spot relative to the stars. This means that it had to have been taken within an hour or so of each other. They also show the size of the stars being the same, meaning that they needed to have been taken with the same kind of telescope, with the same setup, and the same atmospheric conditions. The difference is a rotation and 
a little bit of cropping, but the big difference is the addition of a companion object. In other words, the fraud was the University of Hawaii photo with an extra dot added to be a companion. Despite these similarities, as in they were pretty much exactly the same with the difference of a companion added, people elsewhere still tried to point to tiny, tiny differences to claim that the University of Hawaii's claims were false and that they did have different origins. Those pages still exist on the internet, and I've linked up to some of the numerous links and references for this episode. What happened that day and during the broadcast on the night of January 16th, 1997, is the only time that I've ever heard Art Bell yell at a guest on air, and I've listened to a lot of interviews. Both Art and Whitley talked with Courtney Brown, who, after a lot of equivocation, stated, quote, It does appear that the photo is fraudulent. It does appear that the photo is uh, a piece of disinformation that was given to us. This is a very great puzzle to us. End quote. Courtney continued, I don't have all the answers. It, all the evidence is pointing in the direction of our astronomer, but he is an extremely well-respected person. And, you know, I tell you, today, all today, since this morning when I first heard about this thing, we have been racking our brains going through absolutely everything that ever happened, comparing everything, looking at everything, looking for some type of reasoning behind it. We even asked whether the guy is a member of PSYCOP, you know, the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal, to, to see if he was setting us up, because maybe he said he just wanted to debunk remote viewing. Fortunately, none of our remote viewing was based on that photograph, but the very fact that we gave you the photograph, uh, you know, ties us to that photograph. What I'm about to play now is a 4-minute, 37-second clip, in case you want to fast forward, of one of the core discussions that took place, and where Art yelled at Courtney, or at least what I interpret as a yell. I think the entire clip is important for a few reasons. First, it demonstrates, in my opinion, at least some recognition of responsibility on both the part of Art and Whitley for this story, and there was a lot more of that on Art's part a few nights later. To be fair... Throughout previous interviews, while Art said that this was not a War of the Worlds-style broadcast, that it was all real, uh, what they were trying to relate, he emphasized that it was all based on Chuck's photo and then on Courtney's and Prudence's statements. He also told parents to get their young children out of the room. Second, it demonstrates what, in my opinion, was a lot of shifting of blame and backtracking on previous statements by Courtney. The reason I say this is backtracking is that Courtney was incredibly certain, as I'll get to in part two, of what he was saying. And in all of the previous interviews, there was absolutely no implication that there was any ambiguity in his statements or interpretation of what had been said by this claimed astronomer contact. If it is a fraud, someone perpetrated it. Yeah. The question is, why did they want to slip it through to us? No, doctor. Not, the, the no, question, I agree. That's not the question. The question is... Who perpetrated the fraud? That's now, toward Whitley, Whitley that's, that's the bottom line as far as you're concerned as well? At the moment. The question later, is, the motive might be very important, but I think that the public has a sort of an absolute right to know everything you know about the origin of this photograph. So do I. Well, I, but you're, you're, you know, I've told you everything that we do know, except no, no. the person's name. No, Professor, yes, and, and that's what we want. Oh, now, wait a second, Art. Now, Whitley, also listen to this. You both may disagree with me, and that's fine, but there's two things. What if the person 
actually did perpetrate this thing and actually did was organizing it, the whole thing. First of all, they, we, they, we sent us, the, whoever did it went through a lot of trouble. Obviously. Because the person left the paper trail, they used FedEx, there's, they sent film that was developed. I mean, there's a bigger... So the point is, uh, the person seems to have done it innocently. But... Innocently? Oh, now, let me finish. Let me finish. No, no, no uh, let Whitley say something. Whitley, you take this one. All right. It, it's, there's nothing innocent about this. It's a fraud, an intentionally constructed fraud. And I think you have a, a rather strong obligation to say where the photograph came from. Now, it doesn't, have... That doesn't necessarily mean that this individual uh, is the one who created the fraud. He may also have been duped. But... Okay, it's essential that we know who that is. I don't think let me, let there's any speak. way of getting around that. Let me speak. There were two possibilities I was saying. The first is, what if the person did perpetrate it and actually went through all of this trouble to make this thing the way it is? All right? What if they actually did try to create this fraud for whatever reason? You're referring now to the professor. To the professor. Yes, yes all right. So what, what if he did? Yes. Okay, what if he did? Well, if we put his name out there, then the very, if he's actually done it with a evil intent, then the very first thing he would do is simply deny it, and we'd be slapped with a libel suit. It, it's, it's, it's you a said you had a paper trail, including FedEx receipts. Yeah. It's, it's a situation that would ultimately end up in court, and is... Libel, look, libel, uh, Courtney, uh, is only when you have told a lie, a libelous lie, about somebody, and you've just told us that you've got an absolute trail to this person. Now, uh, by no, naming him, by, wait a minute, no, no, Courtney, you are not, um, by naming this person, saying that he perpetrated the fraud. You're Absolutely. simply saying, I received the material from the following person. That's all you're saying. Now listen, are, are you going to listen to me, or are you going to argue? No, no, I'm, I'm listening. Okay. In my opinion, what we have is the fact that it was sent to us by FedEx, and that we have a roll of film that was developed. That is not... That person could nonetheless say that he said something else, and it wasn't that roll of film. What? The point is, we would get into a big legal hassle, and I don't want to deal with that. But there's one more thing as well. What if the person... Actually, what if we misunderstood when he was talking about the various data that was being sent to him from his other colleagues? And what if we misunderstood? What, how? Uh, no, all right, wait a second. Let me say it first. All right, but Courtney. No, all right, let me right. finish a sentence. Go ahead, finish. What if, in fact, it was our mistake in thinking that these were actually taken by him and, in fact, these were among the other things that were sent uh, by his other colleagues and that he just literally sent them to us because it was an interesting photograph and didn't check it out in the beginning, but in fact uh, was perhaps sloppy and sending it to us or whatever. Courtney, but then there will be real photographs and they should be released. Not only now, that. Not second, only that. If that did, what that... Courtney, what that may I say... Courtney, may, right, I, let me finish may I say sentence. one word? I did let you finish the sentence. May no, I? I didn't because the point is that All would right. ruin his career if in fact it was sent innocently and he was been caught with this it's bad enough that I actually had the photograph. It was slipped to us. We gave it to you. That was a bad enough mistake. It doesn't make it any better to go back to the other person because of the other two, the other two possibilities. That was the last time that Courtney Brown ever appeared on a radio program with Art Bell, as far as I can see. 
And as far as I can tell by searching both my own archives and those on the Coast to Coast AM website, Courtney Brown has never appeared on Coast to Coast AM again. He has, however, appeared on John B. Wells' Caravan to Midnight show, as well as Jimmy Church's Fade to Black show in recent years. It says something when even Coast to Coast won't have you on anymore. Anyway, throughout the discussion that evening, Courtney made no apologies other than for people disagreeing with him. He maintained that the astronomer was real, and to this day, he has never revealed that astronomer's name. He also maintained that his remote viewing, again more on that in part two, is perfectly valid. While I took many, many notes and transcripts during that broadcast, looking back at them, there's very little additional material or points to be made. Courtney maintained that the photos were provided to him by someone else, and that it was not he who perpetrated the fakes, that he would not say who gave them to him, and that he would neither release the remaining photos nor the alleged negatives. He also said that when he had tried to get in touch with the astronomer over the previous day when the photos were pointed out to be frauds, he had not been able to. Art and Whitley maintained that he should release the photos and negatives. They continued to point out that there had been no ambiguity, no qualified statements in anything that Courtney or Prudence had stated, and Prudence maintained that she had known the astronomer in question and spoken with him for many hours. Courtney's reaction was, quote, I guess it's not really hard to fool us by slipping us a photograph, end quote. Inconsistencies were pointed out that the photos were digitally manipulated, so how could they have been on rolls of film? Again, Courtney wouldn't answer. Courtney also maintained that, in my own words, he was willing to be the martyr in this and not give up his alleged source. Even after Art pointed out that it was Courtney's career and reputation that would be damaged, he wouldn't give in and simply accepted it. One could interpret this as Courtney being loyal and not wanting to doom another person. One could also interpret it as Courtney being caught in lies and a hoax, but admitting that there never was an astronomer would make it even worse. I have no idea which is the case. You can find people advocating each one on various internet sites, but with a lack of evidence, I only have my own visceral reaction, which I'm not going to share. A few days later, Courtney released a statement online, but again, I'll get into that in the next episode. After Courtney was off the phone, Art and Whitley continued to talk for about 20 minutes about the whole affair, and despite this fraud on whomever's part, they both thought that the companion was real, as evidenced by Chuck Schrammick's photo. I am still as angry as I was at the beginning at the uh, response uh, to Chuck Schrammick's photograph. Poor Chuck, who simply rendered up a photograph and said, hey, what's this? And we put it up on the webpage. And um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the rest of the amateur uh, community, including uh, Mr. Hale of Hale Bop and uh, Mr. Sipes, and others just came down on him like a ton of bricks. Like a ton of bricks, yeah. I, I don't change my feelings about that, that reaction. Well, if you remember, correctly or not, back to my episode 117 interview with Elizabeth Loftus about false memory, one might forgive Art for being wrong here. Since for you listening now, it was uh, less than an hour ago, unless you paused the episode partway through, Chuck did not offer up the photograph and simply ask, what's this? Instead, he offered it up to a paranormal radio program and then went on air claiming the feature was real, was not a star, maintained it later that it was real and not a star, and said that it was four times larger than Earth. 
A few days later, during a night of open lines calls on January 20th, 1997, Art, he sounded a little bit defeated, in my own opinion, and he told a caller that there were no recent photographs that showed a companion. He didn't know if there was a companion, and he asked what she thought, although he also said that it's not been fully demonstrated if the companion is there or not. But the original goes back to Chuck Schremick, who stated that it was an intelligently controlled companion to this fantastic comet, and that it served as a kick to propel the normal claims of doom and gloom and intrigue that have always surrounded comets in human history. In fact, very recently I've done episodes on more recent comets and the ridiculous claims surrounding them. In this case, it propelled a paranormal radio host to bring on a claimed remote viewer who elevated it to an entirely new level about his own paranormal claims, but also allegedly factual claims based in real science. While this episode is focused on the latter, in the next episode I'll discuss more about Courtney Brown's claims, Prudence Calabrese's claims, and the aftermath for both of them in this whole saga of Comet Hale-Bopp. That'll be followed by part three, which will discuss the Heaven's Gate cult, and, even after that, claims of anomalies and conspiracies surrounding the comet and Heaven's Gate. I'll also state at this point that there are probably some of you right now yelling at me for not taking these people more to task, Chuck, Art, Whitley, Courtney, or Prudence. All I will say is go back to my introduction to the episode and listen more carelessly to what I have said. That was more closely to what I've said. You will probably be able to discern what my own opinions are without really any admissions affirming or denying what I may think is the case from the people involved. They remain my opinions only, and not worth stating in this episode. What I have gotten into are people's statements, provable actions, and objective falsehoods. And there will be a lot more of that in the next two parts. For the logical fallacy segment in this episode, there were really only two that I pointed out or even found after going through a few more times. One is the argument against authority, which I also addressed in episode 124. It's a form of the genetic fallacy, where the conclusion is based solely on something's origins. In this case, it was that NASA was against the idea that Hale-Bopp had a companion. Therefore, it must have had a companion, or therefore Chuck was right, because they were haranguing him. The other fallacy in this episode, one that I've not discussed before, is the Kemhawk ergo propterhawk, uh, perhaps better known amongst those of us who want to keep Latin a dead language as correlation is not equal to causation. This is an incredibly important logical fallacy for skeptics, or anyone really, to know about, for it is used all the friggin' time. All because when one event happens, another seems to happen at the same time, that does not mean that one caused the other. A very important one for what's the harm is vaccines versus autism. These days, we're fortunate that there's a website called Spurious Correlations, put together by Tyler Viggen, maybe, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes. It shows many examples that correlate extremely well, but are clearly not causally related. For example, the number of people who are electrocuted by power lines per year correlates extremely well with the marriage rate in Alabama. That's a state in the United States. 
in an even better correlation, statistically, uh, there's one where he shows the number of political action committees in the United States versus the number of people who died by falling out of their wheelchair. Or another very good correlation is per capita consumption of sour cream in the United States. Well, it correlates very well with the number of motorcycle riders killed by a non-collision transport accident. As I said, correlation does not necessarily equal causation. This entire episode's premise about comets being linked to scary events is a cum-hawk ergo propter hawk fallacy. Just because you can find bad stuff happening when a comet is visible, that does not mean that the comet caused it. Bad stuff happens all the time. This has been a long episode, and in the interest of time, I'm not really going to go into any other segments. Um, I've been keeping track of a new news segment that I'll do in a future episode on Planet X and other stuff. Uh, But there is one announcement that I do want to get into. I'm planning to do a little bit of a tribute to Leonard Nimoy in an upcoming episode. If you'd like to send me a short, as in a few sentences, piece on what the actor or any of his characters meant to you and how they influenced you, I'll read them in an upcoming episode. Or, if you'd like to record a maybe 30 to second bit, you could send that instead. If anyone's interested, uh, go ahead and send it to podcast at sjrdesign.net. That wraps up this topic for the 127th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned, well, in this case, hopefully a lot at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to the website address. Just replace that first period with an at sign, podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment for the page on or for this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, or a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you'll never meet in real life. <laughs>